Well, hello guys and welcome back to Med Talks. Welcome back to the finals countdown series where we are providing all of you wonderful medical students with short, succinct and super useful revision talks for your upcoming exams and generally for life beyond as doctors. So we're still within the endocrine system and in the last episode we covered hyperthyroidism. So today as you can imagine, we're going to look at the opposite direction. We're going to look at an underactive thyroid gland or hypothyroidism. Now, guys, if you haven't yet listened to the other episode on hypothyroidism, then, well, you can check it out completely for free at the press of a button wherever you get your podcast. We've also finished a few episodes on diabetes, and they're also available on the MedTalks channel on podcast platforms such as Apple, Spotify, and Google. So go over and check those ones out if you haven't already done so. We are very grateful for your ongoing support. Please do subscribe to our podcast. Please do share them with your peers and follow us on our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any questions or any comments or you want to leave us any feedback, please feel free to DM us on either any of those platforms or email us. And our email is hellomedtalks at gmail.com. Right, so before we get into what hypothyroidism is, we're going to just recap the anatomy. So it's a butterfly-shaped ductless alveolar gland, which is found in the anterior part of the neck, just below the laryngeal prominence or the Adam's apple. It's not usually palpable. And as we know, as we know from the previous episode, it's one of the main regulators of our body's metabolism. So there's two main thyroid hormones, that's T3 and T4, and they act via nuclear receptors in our different target tissues, and they begin to initiate a variety of metabolic pathways. So in metabolic processes that are increased by thyroid hormones include the basal metabolic rate, gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, synthesis of proteins, synthesis of fatty tissue, and synthesis of heat or thermogenesis. So hypothyroidism is underactivity of the thyroid gland. Often it has an insidious onset, and the clinical features can often be subtle and non-specific, and very often they can be wrongly attributed to other illnesses, particularly in postpartum women and in the elderly. In terms of the epidemiology, now, hypothyroidism does increase with age and it's most common around the age of 60 years old. The most common cause of hypothyroidism worldwide is an iodine deficiency. And in areas where iodine deficiency is not a problem, then it's autoimmune and iatrogenic hypothyroidism are most commonly the causes. So to summarize, essentially it's iodine deficiency in the developing world and its iatrogenic causes or autoimmune causes in the developed world so within the uk and europe it will be the most common cause will be an autoimmune or an iatrogenic cause in its overt form two percent of women and 0.2 percent of men suffer from it and the subclinical version which we'll discuss later there's six to eight percent of women and three percent of men two and a half percent of pregnant women go on to develop hypothyroidism so, how does it occur? Well, it results from an insufficient secretion of thyroid hormones, and it can be due to a number of different abnormalities. In terms of differentiating between the causes, well, similarly with hyperthyroidism, we have primary hypothyroidism, where the primary issue is with the thyroid gland. We have secondary hypothyroidism, where it comes from higher up, so the pituitary gland. And then we have something called transient hypothyroidism, 
So primary hyperthyroidism, the most common cause worldwide, is an iodine deficiency and patients often present with a goiter. Other causes include autoimmune hypothyroidism, and this specifically Hashimoto's thyroiditis is also associated with a goiter. There's iatrogenic hypothyroidism, so for example, if a patient has hyperthyroid and gets radioiodine treatment, then there's a risk of, of turning them hypothyroid. Also, surgery to the thyroid and radiotherapy to the neck, for example, to treat lymphoma. This can lead to iatrogenic hypothyroidism. Medications can also cause it, so amiodarone, iodides, lithium, and antithyroid med medications such as propylthyrouracil and carbimazole. Patients may have congenital defects such as absence of the thyroid gland or infiltration of the thyroid, so for example, sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, and hemochromatosis. Secondary hypothyroidism is is caused a bit higher up, so in the in the brain, and specifically the pituitary glands or the hypothalamus. So patients may have an isolated TSH deficiency, so that's, th so that's a deficiency of the thyroid stimulating hormone, and that's um, that's made by the pituitary gland. Then there's hypopituitarism, so if there's a neoplasm or if there's an infiltration of the pituitary gland, infection and radiotherapy where the pituitary gland is not secreting any of the hormones that it normally does or it's secreting very minimal amounts of those hormones. And again, even higher up is the hypothalamic disorders, so for example, trauma or neoplasms. There is also transient hypothyroidism, so this is short-lived and it can occur if there's a withdrawal of thyroid suppressive therapy a postpartum thyroiditis, or a subacute or chronic thyroiditis with transient hypothyroidism. So as I said at the beginning, the presentation is often insidious onset with nonspecific symptoms, and they may include lethargy, tiredness, a cold intolerance, whereas in hyperthyroidism there is often a heat intolerance. Patients may have dry skin and may be suffering from hair loss. Their memory may, becoming more, their memory may be declining. They may have difficulty in concentrating. They have a change in bowel habits, so for example, constipation. They may also have a decreased appetite and develop weight gain. Patients may also have, have menorrhagia and later go on to develop oligomenorrhea and amenorrhea. So that's infrequent periods, menstrual periods, which is oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea is where the periods just stop completely. Patients may also have reduced libido and they may actually go on to develop depression. In terms of specific signs, so as I mentioned before, some dry and coarse skin, hair loss and cold peripheries. They may have puffy face and hands and feet, and this is called myxedema. The heart rate may slow down, so then they become bradycardic. And patients with hypothyroidism may actually present with serious cavity effusions, so for example, pleural effusions or pericarditis. In autoimmune hypothyroidism, for example, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, patients may have features of other autoimmune diseases such as pernicious anemia, Addison's, diabetes and vitiligo. Although most patients with hypothyroidism do not have associated eye problems but they may cause swelling around the eyes, a loss of hair in the outer part of the eyebrows, protruding eyeballs and visual disturbance. Patients with hypothyroid may also have a delayed relaxation phase of the deep tendon reflexes. Right guys, we're going to take a quick break here because I just want to let you know about a company that I've been using very regularly in the last few weeks and that is called Muscle Food. So Muscle Food is the home of high protein, healthy food that is tailored around you and your lifestyle. No matter what your goal is, no matter what your need is, they deliver convenient and quality food straight to your door.
Now, I've actually been using muscle food for the last probably six to eight weeks now because I reached a point where I wanted to start cutting down my calories but eating healthy meals that were high in protein. And so every 10 days, I get a new order where I get 10 boxes and it's very reasonable in terms of its price. And the actual boxes are different types of chicken curries with rice. My particular favorite is the Thai green curry with rice and also the black bean curry with rice all uh, both of them are about 400 calories very high in protein and very low in fats as well which is what makes it even more appealing if you want to trim down you're you're conscious about your body and your looks and uh, you want to just stay fit I cannot recommend muscle food enough they don't just offer those meals they offer you proper meal plans according to your lifestyle and your desires they also give you snacks drinks such as protein shakes and other supplements so they really give a lot if you want to learn more about muscle food and i highly encourage you to do so then please do click the link that is in the episode description and it will take you straight to their website where you can see all of their plans you can see all of the products they that they provide and you can start to change your life and your fitness forever Okay, back to the podcast. Right, so those are some of the clinical features. Now we're going to look at the investigations and how we diagnose the condition. Now, usually measuring the TSH and the free T4 is sufficient to diagnose it. And the TSH levels are the single most important diagnostic test. test. So if the TSH level is high, then we need to look at the free T4. So in primary hypothyroidism, this TSH level is elevated. This is because of the reduced negative feedback from the from thyroxine so free t4 because the free t4 levels are reduced and therefore as a negative through the negative feedback loop the pituitary gland is trying to release more tsh so for primary hypothyroidism we have a raised tsh and a reduced free t4 for secondary or tertiary hypothyroidism there's a normal or lowered tsh or trh and a reduced free t4 so this is telling us that the problem is in the pituitary gland or the hypothalamus and we're getting reduced signaling from there and so the thyroid gland is not making as much free T4 so everything is reduced. Subclinical hypothyroidism refers to a raised TSH but a normal free T4. Now some individuals might have symptoms that could be caused by this. If the cause is autoimmune thyroiditis such as Hashimoto's then we look at antibodies or autoantibodies. And the ones we look at are the anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies, so anti-TPO. Now, we consider these in patients with TSH above the normal level. It's often elevated in chronic autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But it's non-specific and it can also be elevated in Graves' disease, as well as being seen in otherwise normal individuals. There's also the anti-thyroglobulin, anti-TG antibodies, which is commonly elevated in Hashimoto's. And then there's the thyroid stimulating hormone receptor antibodies. This is classically seen in Graves' disease, but it can also be present in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. If there is any suspicion of malignancy which is causing hypothyroidism, then patients need to have an ultrasound and be referred to an endocrinologist as a two urgent two-week wait. Now we're going to look at the management and essentially we need to replace the thyroid hormone. So, Levothyroxine is the most commonly used synthetic version of T4 or thyroxine. It's the main treatment for primary hypothyroidism. The NICE guidelines do not advise the use of synthetic T3 because the evidence for T4 is much much more superior and there is a lack of long-term safety data for T3. So 
If a patient is between the age of 18 and 65 years old, then they will be started on levothyroxine and the dose will be titrated up or down as required. And then they need patients need to have their thyroid function test checked every two to three months and then once a year once they're stable. And if a patient is over 65 or they have cardiovascular risk factors, then the dose might be a little bit higher. And again, that will be titrated and rechecked every two to three months and then yearly once they are stable. Patients with subclinical hypothyroidism, well, this will need a another confirmatory test at about three to six months. Treatment is not routine and they may just need to be monitored. But if they are symptomatic, then they may still be started on treatment. And this will require a specialist referral to an endocrinologist. Now, subclinical hypothyroidism is essentially just a milder form of hypothyroidism and it's characterized by having a raised serum TSH level, but a normal serum free thyroxine level or free T4. Now, it's most commonly caused by Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Now, the presentation is variable and the classic signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism that we discussed earlier may not actually be present. Of the people with subclinical hypothyroidism, only a proportion will go on to develop overt symptoms each year. And in those with detectable antibodies against thyroid peroxidase, this occurs in about 4.3%, while in those with no detectable antibodies, this occurs in about 2.6%. Those patients who have subclinical hypothyroidism and detectable anti-TPR antibodies, but do not require treatment, should then have repeat thyroid function tests more frequently, for example yearly, compared with those who do not have any antibodies. So the most concerning complication of hypothyroidism is something called a mixed edema coma. And this is typically seen mostly in elderly patients and it has a mortality rate between 20 and 50%. So a patient might be on treatment for hypothyroidism or they might be previously undiagnosed. And the main precipitating factors for a mixed edema coma are infections and discontinuation of thyroid supplements, so levothyroxine. And patients can present with reduced consciousness, seizures, hypothermia and features of hypothyroidism. Other precipitating factors include sedative drugs such as morphine or codeine, or gabapentin, pregabalin, or anything that impairs the respiratory system, such as a pneumonia, a myocardial infarction, or cardiac failure. Hyperventilation plays a major role, and it can result, and with the resulting hypoxia and hypercapnia, raised carbon dioxide. Metabolic disturbances also feature that might be hyponatremia and hypoglycemia. The way we patients with a mixed edema coma are treated is through intravenous levothyroxine, so they have a loading dose, and then a lower dose for maintenance on a daily basis. Other therapy is typically supportive, so correcting any metabolic disturbances, warming the patient if they're hypothermic, and treating any precipitating factors. If the respiratory impairment is severe, then they might need to be intubated and ventilated, and so they'll need referral to intensive care and anaesthetics. Intravenous hydrocortisone is also required because impaired adrenal function is present in profound hypothyroidism, but patients should have a random blood cortisol sent first before the intravenous hydrocortisone is started ideally. Right, so now that's the main complication that we are most concerned about. Let, now let's talk about how we can prevent hypothyroidism. So firstly, we can try and add iodine to commonly used foods. And that's why in the developed world where there is sufficient iodine in our diets, hypothyroidism, which is caused by iodine insufficiency, is less of an issue. Whereas in the, de the developing world, uh, that's why it's the most common cause of hypothyroidism. Now, so it can be prevented in a population by adding iodine to commonly used foods, and this, this is a public health measure which, is, which has eliminated endemic childhood hypothyroidism in countries where it once was common. 
And in addition to promoting the consumption of iodine-rich foods, for example dairy and fish, many countries with moderate iodine deficiency have implemented universal salt iodization. Salt is basically a table salt which is mixed with a minute amount of various salts of the element iodine and therefore the ingestion of iodine goes on to prevent iodine insufficiency. According to the statistics, about 70% of the world's population across 130 countries are receiving iodized salt. So, screening. So, we have screening performed in the UK for hypothyroidism, and it's the newborn period. So, it's a newborn spot test looks for congenital hypothyroidism. So, the heel prick test that babies get on day five, one of those conditions that we look out for is congenital hypothyroidism. And this has led to the early identification of many cases and then the prevention of developmental delay. Now finally, I just want to touch on what could happen if we do not treat hypothyroidism properly. So firstly, patients are at a greater risk of developing cardiovascular disease if it's untreated because having low levels of thyroxine can lead to increased levels of cholesterol and then high cholesterol can lead to a number of cardiovascular problems. Also, if it's not treated, then patients can develop and continue to keep goiters. So goiters are abnormal swellings of the thyroid gland, which then causes a lump to form in the throat. And this can have complications such as difficulty with swallowing, compression of the airway. So that's why it's very important to be treated. If it's during pregnancy, having an underactive thyroid which is not treated during the pregnancy, there's a risk of complications occurring such as preeclampsia where this, this can cause high blood pressure and fluid retention in the mother and growth problems in the baby. It can cause the mother to have anemia. It can cause the baby to have underactive thyroid. It can lead to birth defects, bleeding after birth and even can there's a complication of stillbirth or miscarriage. So there's a lot of problems that it can cause and that's why it's really important to be treated properly during pregnancy. And then in the rare, very rare cases, the myxedema coma that we mentioned earlier on. So that brings us to the end of this episode on hypothyroidism. As promised, in today's episode, we've talked all about what an underactive thyroid essentially means. We've recapped on the physiology and the anatomy of the thyroid gland. We've looked at the epidemiology of hypothyroidism. We've explored some of the causes. We've looked at primary and secondary. We've looked at the clinical presentation, so how patients with hypothyroidism might present. Then we've gone on to look at how we diagnose it using the various blood tests, including the antibody tests. And finally, we've touched on the treatment and some of the complications, and also how we try and prevent it and how we screen for the condition. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and found it particularly useful. Please remember to share it with your friends, your peers, anyone else who you think may find it useful. We would love to hear your feedback. We'd love to answer any of your questions. So feel free to DM us on any of our social media platforms. And you can also email us and our email address is hellomedtalks at gmail.com. In the next episode, we'll be continuing with the thyroid and we're looking at thyrotoxic storms so do stay tuned for that we'll be bringing that to you very shortly thank you for listening and a very very goodbye